Amen. Uh, let, let me talk about something called the McGurk effect. Anybody heard of the McGurk effect? Uh, no, it, it's, it really messes with you, actually. So, so what it is, is I um, came across this week um, a, a video of a man who is saying, bar, 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 right? Um, and then you see a video of the same man with the same noise, but this time his face is going, and you can't hear the buh. You can only hear far, far, far. And even when you know that that's what's happening, you know that the sound you're hearing is bar. You can't hear bar. You can only hear far because that's what you're seeing. Um, you see, see our, our brains are processing complex amounts of information all the time, trying to make sense of the world, trying to interpret it. Our brains do a pretty good job of that. Sometimes they get a little bit confused. Uh, and the life of faith can be just like that. Our faith perception is being bombarded constantly by all kinds of things. We're trying to make sense, faith sense of the world. Um, and sometimes we get awfully muddled. Um, life can mess with us. Uh, uh, we, we, we look at our own, uh, what's going on for us, and it's, it's confusing. We look at the world beyond us, um, and we see all kinds of craziness. And what does it mean, then, for us to keep trusting the Lord in the dizzying complexities of life? Now, the world around us isn't short on options. There's all kinds of different ways being offered to us to navigate our way through. Now, sometimes we don't stop to realize that we have been swept along. Um, and our life of faith is falling apart. How do you keep trusting the Lord? Now, wh- wh- where, do, where do you start with that? Do you even want to start? Those questions are not new questions. As we come to Isaiah chapter 8, these are the questions. And they are real questions. This isn't a hypothetical passage we're looking at. Um, this is, this is a, a passage which tells about real people. Uh, they were living in the 8th century B.C., And they're in the midst of a crisis. And in the middle of their great crisis, the prophet Isaiah is trying to help them think about faith. Uh, I've got a a soft spot for Isaiah 8. Uh, Not not quite sure why. There are some um, astonishing paths from this this ancient prophecy that run through to the Lord Jesus. Uh, There's something that is quite um, kind of um, intensely, urgently personal about Isaiah chapter 8. Now, let, let, let me remind you a bit of what's going on. We, we saw this last week when we looked at chapter 7, um, but it's helpful to bear these things in mind. I've got some maps this week. So we, we've got the little nation of Judah uh, in blue there, their capital, Jerusalem. Their king is Ahaz. Uh, last week we saw Ahaz is a, he, he's, he's a wicked man. He's, he's a wicked king. Uh, you, you've got the little nation of, of Aram. Um, their capital, Damascus, their king is Rezin. Uh, you've also got the, the little nation, the other, the other part of Judah, the kind of northern part, Israel, with their capital, Samaria. Their king is Pekah, son of Remaliah. Um, or, or you, you've got the kind of little nations, but the real, the real thing that's going on is this great nation of Assyria, the huge nation of Assyria, which is expanding so quickly during this time. That, that purple bit was 745 BC. And then like kind of 30 years later, they've expanded to the green bit. After that, they get even bigger. They are, they are rapidly taking over the world, and everybody is terrified about Assyria. Uh, so Aram and Israel have joined together to make a little alliance. They want Judah to join them. And in order to get Judah to join them, they are threatening to attack Judah. Um, and they have been attacking Judah. And in Judah, the king Ahaz and the people are terrified about this attack from these little nations. Uh, in Isaiah 7, we saw the message from the Lord is you don't need to be afraid. 
You don't need to be afraid. This will come to nothing. You just need to trust me. Uh, Ahaz doesn't want to do that. Instead, he wants to trust Assyria. He, He asks Assyria to save him. And the message we saw last time is that if you want Assyria, Assyria is what you will get, and it will be terrible. And so we come into chapter 8. Chapter 8, the first half, what we will see is finding faith when overwhelmed. I I, I don't know if you know the feeling when when there's something happening, something going on, and you're not being told about it. It could be like in, in the workplace, the senior managers get called away to a meeting and there are hushed conversations and, and knowing looks, but you, you, you're not part of it. There's something happening, but you're, you're cut out of the, the information. God doesn't work like that. Uh, when God communicates, he wants everyone to know. Uh, for God, it doesn't just matter what the leaders are doing, it matters what everybody is doing. Uh, uh, someone, someone said, I was reading this week, said, um, God has the same message for the kings and the kids. God tells his people the truth. He tells all his people the truth. He tells all his people the whole truth. And Isaiah 8 is about getting the message out to everybody. Now, how do you get the message out to everybody? What do you do? How do you get attention? Well, let's start with verse 1. Verse 1, the Lord said to me, to Isaiah, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. It's not really a scroll. This is a billboard. Uh, like one of those huge advertising boards you see. Uh, it's something that everybody can see. And Isaiah is to write the message with an ordinary pen. That is, write in a way that ordinary people can understand. He's getting the message out onto the streets. And the message he is to write is this message, Mahashalal Hashbaz. There's a bit of ambiguity with this message. Um, it, it's, it's a message which, which means, quick, uh, there is plunder. Hurry, the stuff to steal what the message says. Um, and I think the ambiguity is part of the communication. It's, it's provocative. Uh, it's trying to invite people to explore, to see this message being placarded around and think, what is that about? Uh, in order to assure that this message gets out, that people take notice, there are some witnesses to get, these people who would be thought well of in the community. Uh, interesting choices. Um, this Uriah guy, he's a, he's a priest, Uh, We're told about him elsewhere that he is the priest who, with instructions from King Ahaz, built in the Lord's temple an altar to the pagan gods. This is Uriah, the priest, but well thought of in the community, so he is one of the witnesses. The point is, the message needs to be got out. People need to hear this message. And the next bit is to make the message alive. In verse 3, Isaiah and his wife, the prophetess, they make a baby. And when the baby boy is born, the Lord says, you are to call him Mahashalal Hashbaz. And the point is, why would you give your kid that name? Provokes the question, doesn't it? Provokes the conversation. And people are wanting to be asking, what is this about? What is going on? And verse 4 answers. When people come and say, why would you call your boy that? The message is this. It's because before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother... The wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. In Jerusalem, everybody is terrified about being attacked by Aram and Ephraim, by Israel. And the Lord's message comes again, says you don't need to worry about them. The king of Assyria is going to come and it won't be long. When I was at school, if I had an exam, before I went into school, my mum would always look me in the eye, usually put her hands on my shoulders and say, Richard... Read the question. 
Um, she, she knew I had a tendency to kind of skim the question, skip the question sometimes, uh, because I knew the answer, so I'd, I'd plow on with giving the answer, and I was answering the wrong question. I would miss what was really being asked. Now, we can do that sometimes when it comes to trusting the Lord. Uh, I think between verse 4 and 5, it shows how it might happen. You see, we're told back in chapter 7, verse 2, the people are terrified by the threat from Aram and Ephraim. Um, and now there's this billboard message saying you don't need to worry about them. Um, they're on their way out. And, and it'd be easy to stop there and for people to go, whew, that's a relief, isn't it? We can just crack on with the rest of our lives, keep on as we always have been. And the message of the Bible can sometimes be treated like that. We, we, we hear a little bit. Uh, someone hears, because of Jesus, you can go to heaven. I think, well, that's great, isn't it? That's, that's pretty good. That's, you can't really argue with that. Sounds great. Now I can just carry on with my life as it has always been. It's, it's perhaps a deeper challenge for those of us regularly involved in church. We come each week and we allow ourselves to listen so far. But before it gets too deep, too uncomfortable, we stop listening. We enjoy there's maybe a superficial comfort. But, but, but in reality, we're, we're really trusting other things to manage life with, to cope with life. Uh, we, we don't want to hear any more. So these people in Isaiah 8, they must, be, they, they must beware of simplistic and superficial comforts that are covering over their unbelief. And so must we. In verse 5, the Lord speaks again. Because this message of Mahashal al-Hashbaz, it's not a message of comfort. It's a warning. And here's the warning, verse 6. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. This people, I think, are the northern kingdom here, the kingdom of Israel. And long before this, long generations before, they had chosen to detach themselves from the promises of God's salvation. Shiloh was, was the stream fed by the Gihon Spring just outside Jerusalem. It was a special place. It was a place where David anointed Solomon, his son, to be king after him. A place where the, the promises that through the line of David would come the Messiah king were remembered and held on to. But after Solomon, the nation divided. And the northern territories rejected the hope of the Messiah and chose to, chose to make their own way. That story, a generation after generation story of rejecting the Lord is now seen in them putting their hope in Rezin, king of Aram, and the son of Remaliah as their king who is not the Davidic king. Their story, we're told, is because they rejected the Lord their God, verse 7, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the great river that ran through Assyria. They're about to be overwhelmed by the flood of Assyria, the king of Assyria with all his pomp, the mighty armies of Assyria with their sweeping away the nations. Like, a, like an overwhelming sudden rush of flood water. But, but Isaiah isn't speaking to the northern kingdom. He's speaking to Judah. He, he's talking about the story of the northern kingdom in order to make a point to the people of Judah. Because the thing about the waters of Shiloh is that they flow gently. It's just a little trickling brook. And, and it looks so weak. And, and the people of Judah might already be thinking, look, if you want to talk about waters... Let's not think about this little trickling brook, this embarrassing little stream. Let's think about the mighty Euphrates. That's impressive. That is strength. That's real strength. And the people of Judah were not trusting the Lord for help. They put their hope in Assyria to be their savior. 
They didn't think the Lord could do it. They had to go somewhere else. And, and by doing that, they're going the way of their northern brothers and sisters. And so what was coming to Israel would also come to them. You know, if the message Mahashal al-Hashbaz only means that Assyria is going to remove the threat to Judah, then the people in Judah will think, we've got it sorted. We've worked this out. We paid Assyria to help us. We've managed to organize our salvation. But, but they, they missed that the insatiable desire that governs Assyria would mean that Assyria would not stop at the borders of Judah. Judah had asked for Assyria, and Assyria is what Judah would get. What they think would save them would be the very thing that would destroy them. There's the message, this great flood water will overflow all its channels, it will run over all its banks. And once you've invited evil into your life, you can't stop where it will go. And it will sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through and reaching up to the neck. And the image changes then from floodwaters to a mighty bird of prey, poised over its victim. Its outstretched wings will cover the breadth of the land. And you notice in verse 7 that behind all this is the mighty hand of God. It's the Lord who is doing this. We'll see it more in later chapters that these Assyrian armies and all the devastation that comes, these armies are brought by the Lord. You know, I guess that kind of thing can make Christianity quite a hard pill to swallow. If Mahashal al-Hashbaz, if that only means that my life will be safe and free from trouble, we can accept that, can't we? You can't really argue with it. It sounds good. But if it also means that my sin will meet the judgment of God, and that the judgment of God is not a slap on the wrist, but it is horror, that's, that's harder for us to take. We, we begin to shut up our ears when we begin to hear that. But God doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't hide the hard things in order to trick us into following him. God deals honestly with people. And that's good because the hard realities of life are too serious, aren't they? We know that. We know that life can just be so, it can be too bad. There is so much sadness and darkness, too much for it just to be glossed over or hushed up. Sugarcoating and superficial comforts don't match the reality of life's agony. Humanity is radically broken, and that radical brokenness is not helped by bland niceness. If there's going to be hope, if it's going to be solid and real hope, then the hope must be more radical. It must cut deeper than the suffering we see and feel. But the radical brokenness includes the response of God in judgment to the way people reject him from their lives. A Judah, this case in point, have looked away from the Lord. They've looked to Assyria, and Assyria is what they will get, sweeping, it, sweeping away their enemies first, but then rushing on into the land of Judah and overwhelming the land and the, the floodwaters reaching right up to the neck. But the story is always more. You notice at the end of verse 8 who the message is addressed to. It says, Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel's land. We heard in chapter 7 of the Emmanuel sign that the virgin will give birth to a son and he is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We saw last time that, that this is the promise of that king born in the line of David who will be that divine Messiah. Uh, Israel and now Judah have rejected that hope. They have turned away from it. But the stubborn faithfulness of God 
is that he is investing that promise with more hope than any of these people could ever dare to dream. This is Emmanuel's land. And so the Emmanuel child will be born into this place of condemnation. Condemnation brought about by the unbelief of the people. Emmanuel will enter into the place of condemnation. And in the fullness of time, when the virgin was with child and gave birth to a son, he was given the name Jesus. And the Emmanuel sign was fulfilled, and Jesus grew to adulthood. And he grew to adulthood so he could put himself willingly into the ultimate place of condemnation, onto the cross of Calvary. Now on the cross, we see Emmanuel suffering the punishment due to the sin of his people. And Isaiah cries out, this is your land. It's your place, Emmanuel. And if it's Emmanuel's place, if it's Emmanuel's land, and Emmanuel is God with us, then the place is God's place with his people. And that one word, that one name, just ties up the whole of the Bible story right from beginning to end. The whole of history and the the deepest of all hopes is found in the name Emmanuel. In the beginning, God created a place so that he could be with his people. God with his people. Enjoying his great happiness and goodness. But people rebelled and sin entered the world as people turned away and and the world was fractured. And darkness and death came swallowing up like the forces of Assyria, flooding and overwhelming. And then into the darkness comes Emmanuel. Because God is unchangingly committed to his purpose. His purpose to be with his people. To be with his people even when that means that God himself must enter their condemnation. So undeterred he came, the divine Messiah coming to save, coming to die, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's the great end of the story, the great hope, the glorious future is that God will be united with his people. God's place will be with his people. God will be with us forever and ever in imperishable bliss. So that means that when Isaiah cries out, oh, Emmanuel, a song of defiance begins to roar. That's what verse 9 and 10 is. It's a song of defiance, a song sung to the nations, a song song, sung out to the wicked plotting and, and plans and raging of mankind, saying you can go and do your very worst, because ultimately it will come to nothing. Why will it come to nothing? Verse 10, for Emmanuel, for God is with us. Now the message, Mahashal of Hashbaz, tells that very soon the Assyrians will come. Devastation is imminent. The land will be overwhelmed. The world around these people will crumble. And when that happens, when the floodwaters overwhelm and your world is crumbling, Isaiah calls the people to ask the most important question. What is God doing? Not, not, not to make sense of the madness, but to plot a, plat of faith, a, plat of, a path of hope in the midst of it. What is God doing? The answer is Emmanuel. That's what God's doing. Into the mess, into the condemnation that we deserve, into our place so he can be with us, always with us, and working for us away beyond the troubles. God faithfully pursuing his purposes to be with his people forever. Now how do you keep trusting the Lord? Walking on a path of faith when all around is crumbling. Isaiah 8 begins by calling for faith in the midst of the overwhelming floods, calling us to remember that God is faithful to his promise. Faith because Emmanuel. 
the second half of the passage calls for faith under fire. Finding faith under fire. Look at verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Uh, one commentator said, um, said it, it can't be that Isaiah was wavering. Why not? He's a man, isn't he? A human like the rest of us. In fact, verse, verse 11 seems very much open to the possibility that Isaiah's own faith might stumble. It's very personal. The Lord puts this strong compulsion onto Isaiah, warning him, saying the people around you are going to be turning to all kinds of things. They will trust anything other than the Lord, and there will be panic. And there will be people who are persuading you to go in all kinds of ways, and it will be hard to keep trust. Faith will be under fire. And I think in this second half, there are two warnings about things that threaten faith. And then verses 16 to 18 sit in the middle of those two warnings. Uh, we'll look at the warnings first. The first one, uh, do not fear what they fear, verses 12 to 15. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. In times of trouble, there's a lot of chat, isn't there? Lots of, lots of talk, lots of ways of trying to explain things, lots of scare stories. Are stories that often say much more about the fears of those telling them than really what is going on. And Isaiah is warned, don't get entangled in all of that. Don't fear what they fear. And he may have sympathy with their fears. Big fears, fears we know today, fears about the future, fears about security, about health, about happiness. It's all under threat and we can easily connect. Uh, Isaiah is not told that their fears are fit, not fearful, but he's told they're somewhere else to go. That they must bring into the picture what ultimately will determine all things. The Lord and the place he has in their hearts. Verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Don't waste your dread on things that don't ultimately matter. The Lord is the God Almighty who knows the end from the beginning, who calls all things into being, who sustains all things, who determines the ways that things will go. Don't fear Assyria, fear the one who sends Assyria. As Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, fear the one who after you've died can throw body and soul into hell. You see, the things we fear control us, don't they? If we fear flying, we don't go on a plane. If we fear losing friends, we shy away from uncomfortable truths. But if we fear God, we live our whole lives to show his worth. His opinion is most important. See, to regard the Lord as holy means to set your attitude to him as the one who has highest importance in all things. It means what God says matters more than what anyone else says. What God says matters more than what you see and more than what you feel. Verses 14 and 15 add a promise and a warning to this prompt to do right. The promise is, he will be a holy place. He will be a sanctuary. If for those who, who do trust the Lord, they will find him to be a place of protection. And God is a great rock, a great um, immovable reality. And he does not change. And what does change is how people relate to him. For those who trust him, he is a sanctuary rock, a safe place. For those who don't trust him, he is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And that rock is Christ. 
When you get to the New Testament and Peter writes his first letter, he picks up on these verses in Isaiah 8 to describe the different ways that people respond to Jesus. He says that for those who come to Jesus, those who come to Jesus, Isaiah 8 says, for those who trust the Lord, he will be a sanctuary. Peter says, for those who come to Jesus, you will become in him a sanctuary. So much we could go into there, probably shouldn't now. But also the warning then comes, the same warning. For those who do not believe, quoting Isaiah 8, says Peter, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message. And God doesn't change. Either you trust him and you find him to be a rock of refuge, or you refuse him and you find him to be a rock of stumbling. Back in ancient Jerusalem in the times of Isaiah, when the world was crumbling, that was the message. Stop depending on stuff that doesn't help. Trust the Lord. In the times of Peter, as he writes this letter out to these these small, ordinary, overlooked Christian churches over modern-day Turkey, the message was the same. Trust the Lord. Put your trust in Jesus. Today, the message is the same. Even when when the world is crumbling and there are fears all around us, the Lord does not change. He's still a rock upon which we will fall if we don't believe, or who will be a refuge for all who trust Jesus Christ. So don't fear what they fear. In fact, Peter quotes Isaiah 8 again in his letter later on. Uh, He says, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. It's huge. In Isaiah 8, um, Isaiah is saying, It is the Lord Almighty who you should regard as holy. And, And Peter quotes that and says, And Jesus is the Lord Almighty. That stunning vision that Isaiah had in chapter 6 of the great holiness, the transcendent holiness of mighty God with the seraphim flame angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Peter says that's Jesus. Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory, the same Jesus who we must trust with everything today. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us in the flesh. God in our flesh. God come to save us. To be our refuge. So in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Treat Christ as the most significant person in all things. Now Peter then says that is the basis from which we gently hold out hope to an unbelieving world. But the point here is that when your faith is under fire, when it's hard to hold on, look to Jesus. You don't need to obsess about the, the worries of those who don't know Christ. Sympathize, yes, but... But we hold our hope. You don't need to fear what everyone else fears. Because of Jesus. Because he is God Almighty who offers himself to be your refuge. And it's a security more secure than anything the world can offer. And so the first warning in this second half of the, the passage is don't fear what they fear. The second warning at the end of the passage is don't seek what they seek. You verse 19. When someone tells you, not if they do, when they do. Because they do, don't they? People tell you stuff. Particularly when you have a problem, people give you advice. Sometimes it's well-meaning, sometimes it's not. Often it's nonsense. Uh, It might be a friend coming alongside. It might be something we see on the telly, an advert, saying, if you want your life sorted and peaceful and beautiful and wonderful, this is... People are telling us stuff. In Isaiah's time, people wrestling with how to solve their problems. And it says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter... It was a big big deal back then. 
seeking some special little insight to unlock your mess. It's a big deal today still. Now, I'm told that in our increasingly secular world, the appetite for mediums and such like, contact with the dead is on the rise. And it's madness. Isaiah may have been drawn into it. Maybe everyone around him was doing it, but the response is abrupt. Should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? It's like, you know, you have a problem with your computer and you're sitting there. Um, and, and, and next to you, as you're wrestling with this problem on your computer, is the man who designed your computer, who made your computer, who understands it inside out. We'll call him Bill. And um, you say, you, you, you're getting frustrated. You say, I, I don't know what the problem is. I don't, know, I don't know what to do. If only there was somebody I could ask. And Bill's sitting there saying, you could ask me. Um, but but you, you just ignore him and you get more and more frustrated. You say, okay, I'm just going to try this. Um, Fido, that's the name of your dog. Fido, if, if, you, if you bark once, I'll hit all the keys at the same time. If you bark twice, I'll get a hammer and smash it up. And, and, and Bill's there saying, you, you, could just, you could just ask me, couldn't you? No, we wouldn't want to be that guy, would we? No, whether Fido is a medium or, I don't know, asking your mates down the pub or, 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 or believing the lies that come to us from the advertisers. No, the Lord God is ready to help. But like Bill, is not being asked. And the warning is stark at the end of this passage. If you keep ignoring the Lord, there is no hope. If you push the Lord out of your life, who is light and love and goodness, then you will have no light or love or goodness. There'll be no dawn, it says. It'll just be emptiness. If you're not asking God to provide, there will be no provision. And and it says that they're going to keep misdirecting the cause of their problem. It's, It's always someone else's fault, isn't it? We rage against the king. We even rage against God, but we never look at our own hearts because our own belief has nothing to do with it. And it says wherever they look, whether it's up or down, they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust out into utter darkness. It's tragic, isn't it? Why would they do everything but turn to the living God? Isaiah is warned, don't seek what they seek. They consult the dead, but you, verse 20, you are to consult God's instruction and testimony. Not of warning. God's instruction and testimony. You see, when people are under pressure, they will go to all kinds of places for help. Often, it seems that people will go anywhere other than God. And God says, why don't you come to me? Now, where do you go when you're under pressure? When the problems press upon you, how quickly do you open his words? In some ways, that's just the great distinction between believers and unbelievers. Where do you go when you're under pressure? Now, at the beginning, I asked, though, what does it mean to keep trusting the Lord in the dizzying complexity of life's struggles? Well, the answer is here. Go to the living word of the living God. That's what faith is. Faith is we take God at his word. We listen to what he says. We act upon what he says. We seek for what he says to be the direction of our lives. Now, these two warnings, don't fear what they fear, don't seek what they seek. But then in the middle comes up. Isaiah's testimony, his own personal statement. See in verse 17, he says, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. That's the response of faith, modeled in the prophet. I will wait, I will trust. 
verse 16, I will take God at his word and I will hope for the Lord. Even though at that time, the Lord is hiding his face. Now, do, do we get that? That at this time, there was no tangible sense of the Lord's goodness. I think this is really, really important for us to see. Because there will be times for all of us, and there may even be times right now, when we would say exactly what Isaiah says. That the Lord is hiding his face. And you just have no sense of his goodness. You see, there is a kind of faith that is founded on our feelings. A faith that kind of works like this. It's a kind of, I feel that God loves me, and so I will trust him. And you know, if we feel that God loves us, it's not that hard to trust him. Now, those are really precious times. But if, it, if it's the feeling that drives the faith, what about when the feeling fades away? What about even when we feel the very opposite, when we feel that God hates us? Now, that's a very real thing for many people. Just this last week, I was speaking to a pastor uh, who, who was saying to me, he, he was saying, I can, uh, when I'm preaching, I can say to others, uh, God, God, God is gracious and God loves you. I just can't say it about myself. Real sense that God is hiding his face, that God is against him. Well, verse 17 says, in that moment, when you do not feel anything good from God, when your life feels the opposite, when God hides his face, that is the moment when you can trust him. William Cooper wrote a hymn that has the verse which says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's what Isaiah says here. He says, I'll not judge the Lord by my feeble sense. But if he doesn't judge the Lord by his feeble sense, then, then what is it that will drive his faith? Verse 18. He says, here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah and his sons. You remember Isaiah's son, Mahashal Hashbaz? His name is a warning about imminent disaster, that the Lord will bring judgment. That is the message of the Lord. But you remember his other son, maybe? We heard about him in chapter 7, verse 3. His other son is called Sheer Jashub. It means the remnant will return. It means after disaster, there is hope. And then there's Isaiah, Isaiah's own name. His own name means the Lord saves. You know, Isaiah and his sons, they're living messages from God, that God has spoken of judgment, God has spoken of hope, and that the Lord alone is the one who saves. That's why verse 16 says, bind up the testimony, seal up God's instruction among my disciples. That There are some in Jerusalem who are listening. There are some who hear God's word and they hope even when he hides his face. And it is the other child, the promised son, who is the answer to all these messages. And when the Emmanuel child comes, he'll be called Jesus. Because his name, like Isaiah, means the Lord saves. And when the Emmanuel child comes, when he came, he fills up all of Isaiah's words. And we read of it in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 that tells us that Jesus came to taste death for everyone, to bring many sons and daughters to glory, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us who believe in him, his brothers and his sisters. And Hebrews chapter 8 quotes from Isaiah, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. 
It puts Isaiah's words into the mouth of Jesus. Jesus says, I will put my trust in him. That is, Jesus will deeply identify with us when it seems that God has hidden his face. Again, Hebrews puts Isaiah 8 in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus saying, here am I and the children God has given me. Here is Jesus, explains Hebrews, who is fully identifying with those he came to save. Who is sharing their humanity so that by his death, he can break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their, by their fear of death. You see, when faith is under fire, when God has hidden his face, even then we can trust. And like Isaiah, trust not because we feel it, but trust because God has spoken in his word. And we will take our stand on what he has said. Trust because of Jesus who is the living word in whom we can hope. Let's pray together. Almighty God, great, holy, transcendent majesty, we praise you for Emmanuel. We praise you for the hope that comes in that name of God with us, even us, even us in our mess and our confusion and our distraction and our distress and our sin. God, with us to sort us out. Oh, Lord God, may we not look anywhere else. May, may, may we not look to the futile and feeble, passing, fading hopes of this world, but may our hope be only Emmanuel, uh, that you would come to us, to be with us, uh, to bring us to our heavenly home. May we trust in you, even when it seems that you are hiding your face. May we know behind the 